Good to see everyone tonight. I'm running a couple of minutes late getting set up here, but we will go ahead and begin, and uh, we've got a lot to cover, so let's have a word of prayer, and, and we'll start. Our Father in heaven, we're so very thankful, Lord, for the opportunity we have to be here together tonight. We're thankful for the rich blessings that you bestow upon us. We're thankful for this congregation, for our elders and their strength and their courage to stand for what is right. We pray that you'll bless them. We pray, Father, that you'll be with us through our class tonight, that it will be profitable to us, that we'll have open hearts, and that as a result of it, we'll be better servants to you. Our Lord, we ask all of this in our service to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 10, and this is a very important chapter. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10 are two of the key chapters in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, of course, is when the church begins, and it is the beginning of the Gentiles coming into the church. Acts, I mean, the Jews. Acts chapter 10 is the Gentiles. Acts 2, Jews. Acts 2, the Gentiles. Now, a quick summary to bring us up to speed. Cornelius is a Gentile. He is the first Gentile convert. There are two views that people hold about Cornelius. One is that Cornelius was a lost man, and the other is that he is a saved man. He was a saved man, and I'm not going to go through all of these uh, particulars again. If, you want, uh, if you've got questions about this, you can go back and look at it. But uh, I believe that he was a saved individual who at the time the gospel was presented to him, he had to accept it or reject it. If he had accepted it, which he did, he would have remained a saved man. If he had rejected it, he would have become a lost man. Anyway, an angel appears to Cornelius and says, you need to send for a man named Peter. He is in Joppa. And so Cornelius, being a Roman soldier, has people that work under him, and he sends them to go to, oops, where's my map of Joppa there? There's my map of Joppa. He's in Caesarea, and he dispatches men to Joppa to find Peter. Meanwhile, in Joppa, Peter is praying. He's on the rooftop. It's noontime. They're preparing lunch. He goes up to the top of the house to pray, and God gives him a vision. The vision is a giant sheet that is lowered down from heaven that has all sorts of animals in it. And some of them were clean for the Jews. Some of them were considered unclean for the Jews, things that the Jews were not allowed to eat according to the law of Moses. But the voice of God said to Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. He said, I've never eaten anything unclean. And the voice says, what I have cleansed, don't you call unclean. This vision happens three times, and then Peter is sitting there stressing, trying to figure out what this means. And then an angel appears to him and says, any minute now, there's going to be a knock at the door. There's some people downstairs. They're waiting on you. And then Peter gets the message. Hey, there's some men here who want to see you. The angel says, I've sent them. That is, God has sent them. Go down and see them. Peter goes down. It's the crew that came from Caesarea. That is, they came from uh, this man who is the first Gentile convert. His name is Cornelius. Now, when they first come in and talk to Peter, he invites them into the house to spend the night. This is a big deal because they are Gentiles and he's a Jew. That typically doesn't happen. 
but it seems like Peter is starting to have some understanding in light of the vision that he just had. So we're going to pick up at Acts 10 and verse 34. Who's reading tonight? Okay, we got David reading tonight. Pick up at verse 34. Oh, I'm sorry. After Peter leaves, he goes with this entourage back to Caesarea. He goes into the house of Cornelius. When he first gets there, Cornelius falls down before him and tries to worship him. And Peter says, you know, get up. I'm a man just like you are. Don't worship me. And we talked about last week how different that is from the Catholic Church today. The Catholic Church says Peter was the first pope. The pope today allows people to fall down and kiss his ring and kiss his feet. Peter would have none of that. He says, get up. I'm a man just like you are. And then Peter begins to preach. Acts 10, 34 is where we're picking up. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Okay, stop right there. This is the first thing Peter says. Of a truth, I perceive, I understand that God shows no partiality. This word partiality, the Greek word here, is very interesting because it comes from a word in the Greek that carries with it the word face. Literally, it says something like this, God does not respect the face of one person more than the face of another person. What would that mean? We're all equal. doesn't matter what you look like. If you're black, if you're white, if you're Arab, it's the first thing. It's the same thing as 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7 that says, God looketh not on the outward appearance as man does, but God looks on the heart. And so I have never understood why mankind has so much problem with prejudice from different races. We think of this as an American thing, black and white, but you will see in the New Testament, the Jew-Gentile prejudice is exceedingly strong. And this is something they struggle with throughout the New Testament. So Peter is talking to this Gentile, who's going to be the first Gentile convert, and he says, of a truth I perceive, God is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. He doesn't look on one face different than another face. All right, verse 35. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Okay, but in every nation, when he says every nation, doesn't that remind you of the Great Commission? Acts 10, 35, but in every nation, he that fears him. Now, here's the Great Commission. It is Matthew 28 and verse 19. Jesus, before he ascended back into heaven, told his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't that have been a clue to them about the Gentiles coming into the church? Peter's struggling to get this about the Gentiles. The rest of the Jews, even the apostles, are struggling with this Gentile thing. When Jesus told them before he ascended, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, shouldn't that have triggered in the back of their mind? Because when you think about the Jews, you've got Jerusalem and Judea and pretty much that region Outside of there, you get into the Gentile world. He said, all nations. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. This is, I've got all these verses on the board here, but just before Jesus ascended back into heaven, he had his disciples together, 
and they said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said, you'll receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the ends of the earth. Now, I don't know how well you can see this. Can you see the, the little blue circle over there? Inside that blue circle, there's a little red circle. Can you see that one? Inside the red circle, there's a black dot. Can you see that? Wow, y'all are really good. I didn't think you could see that. The black dot is on Jerusalem. The red circle is Judea. The black circle is Samaria. And then the big red circle that's a square is representing the uttermost parts of the earth, which is where representing Paul's missionary journeys. In Acts 1 and verse 8, Jesus said, You'll be witnesses unto me after the Spirit has come in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. That pretty well is going to represent the Jewish world. And then the uttermost parts of the earth. That should have clicked with them that the, that the Gentile world was going to be a part of this, right? And so the Great Commission should have, this should have. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 28, the day that the church began, Peter said, Repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the Holy Ghost, for the promise is unto you and your children. Who is that? The Jews. And all of those who are far off. Who is that? It's going to be the Gentiles. It's going to be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. That's the Jews and their children. And all them that are afar off. Who is that? That's all nations. That's the ends of the earth. That's the uttermost parts of the earth. And so even then they should have recognized it, right? The Lord had hinted at this and told, in fact, if you go back to the promise of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, remember God told Abraham, and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. What is that? God was hinting at this even back then. In fact, he's not really hinting, it's pretty direct. All the nations of the earth. You've got the promise to the Gentiles way back there in Genesis chapter 12. So God's been saying it over and over and over. You get to Acts chapter 10 and it's happening. It's finally happening. The Gentiles are coming into the church. So Acts 10, 35, but in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness shall be accepted of him. What does this mean when he says he, fear, he who fears him and works righteousness is accepted of God. Do you have to work righteousness to be accepted of God? Can a person be accepted of God if he doesn't work righteousness? Yeah, that means you got to do right. I mean, Hebrews 5 and verse 9 says that Jesus Christ became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. I wrote that next to this passage. Can you be accepted of God if you don't obey him? He's the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. If you don't obey him, he will not be the author of eternal salvation. Why do I say that? I bring it up because of the idea of faith only, that some teach that all you have to do is believe. All right, let's go to verse 36. If you all have any comments or questions, feel free to interrupt. But let's go verse 36, and uh, uh, let's go a few verses here. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which is proclaimed through all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of 
Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses. Stop. When he says, and we are witnesses, I want you to notice this. Who's he talking about when he says, we are witnesses? He's talking about the apostles. Now, we're going to show that as we keep going. I'm going to interrupt you a few times, but he says in verse 39, and we are witnesses. All right, keep going. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God. All right, stop. He says he didn't show, not everybody saw this. He said, but, but we did. Who? The apostles. We are witnesses. Who? The apostles. We've seen this. Not everyone has seen it, but we have. We're witnesses. Who? The apostles. All right, keep going. Even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Who's he talking about? Who ate and drank with him? He's talking about the apostles. Verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and stop. Who did he command to go and preach to the people? The apostles. You can see he's talking specifically about the apostles here. All right. He commanded us to preach to the people. Keep going. And to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Okay. Now you're going to get to verse 43. What Peter begins is this. He says, we the apostles are witnesses of these things. And God has commanded us to go and preach about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then he says, every nation that accepts this is going to have an opportunity to be saved. All right, verse 43. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin. All right, let's stop here. We get, we've got to spend some time on this verse because this is a key verse and it is a, a very commonly used verse in the denominational world to teach faith only. To him, the prophets gave witness that through his name, whoever believes on him will receive remission of sins. I want you to notice that. Whoever believes will receive remission of sins. In fact, uh, let's see here. I've got some other verses as well that say similar things. Romans 5 and 1, therefore having been justified by faith, uh, we have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have access by faith. Acts 16, 31, so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 Corinthians 1, 21, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom do not God, but it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. I could give, you know, couple of dozen passages that say the same thing, but the argument that is usually made, and as a matter of fact, I looked up one site online, it was a debate actually, and they were debating the subject of baptism, and to prove that faith only is all that's necessary, this was their first verse, Acts 10.43, whoever believes in him will have remission of sins. And the argument that is made is this, God said, if you believe, you will have remission of sins. Now, that is usually used to reject the necessity of baptism. God said that if you believe, you will have the remission of sins. He doesn't say anything about baptism there, does he? He says, if you believe, 
you will have the remission of sins. So what's the problem with that reasoning, or what's the answer to that reasoning? Let's go through a few things. I, I wrote down a few things in my notes today for us to go through. Number one, it leaves out the other steps of the plan of salvation. It leaves out several things. This particular passage says that whosoever believes will have remission of sins. What about repentance? Do you have to repent? Does a person have to repent to have remission of sins? Sure, but this passage doesn't say it. The argument is made, you, have to, you don't have to be baptized to have remission of sins because this passage just says belief. It doesn't mention baptism. It doesn't mention repentance. So do you have to repent? Now, when pressed, sometimes people will say, well, repentance is included. It's understood that you have to repent. Well, in the same way, you can say baptism is understood. It is part of the obedience. Sometime, what about this? This passage doesn't mention confession. Does a person have to confess in order to be saved? What about the argument? It says whoever believes will have remission of sins, but this passage does not mention confession. Romans 10 and verse 9, we have, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This passage says you have to confess and you have to believe in order to be saved. But see, if you go back to the argument of Acts 16, uh, or Acts 16, uh, 30, what verse are we on? 30 or 43. Yeah, Acts 16, 43, or Acts 10, 43, I'm sorry, that whoever believes will receive remission of sins. And people say, that says belief, that's all you got to do. And I just went through six other passages that say you have to believe. But it doesn't say you have to confess. But if you ask them, do you have to confess? They'll say, well, yeah, you've got to confess. Here's another verse that says that you have to confess. So this is one problem with that argument is there are other steps that even folks that say this will acknowledge. Uh, don't say it yet. <laughs> You're going to make a good argument, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not ready for it yet. Mm. Um, he's exactly right what he's going to say. All right, number two, what about this argument from Acts 10, 43? Are we saved by belief alone? That is the argument. Number two, number one, I say it omits other steps of the plan of salvation, which even folks, even these folks that make the argument acknowledge. Number two is inconsistent. These, this argument assumes that you can take one passage that mentions one thing, and that's all that's required. And the Bible doesn't teach that. This passage, Acts 10.43, teaches that you have to believe. Listen to this, though. In Acts 11 and verse 18, the Bible says, Then God has also granted unto the Gentiles repentance unto life. What if I took that one passage? What would you conclude that you have to do in order to be saved? Then God granted unto the Gentiles repentance unto life. What do you have to do? Repent. Do you have to believe? What if I said, this passage says 
God granted unto the Gentiles repentance unto life. He says, repent, and I believe it, because that's what he says, repent. He does not say anything about belief in that passage. I don't think you have to confess because he doesn't say anything about... Con See, that wouldn't be a consistent or reasonable argument. How about this? You've got passages that say you have to confess. Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus says, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. What if I said that is my go-to passage? According to that, what do you have to do in order to be saved on the day of judgment and have Jesus claim you? You just got to confess. What if I said, well, according to this, you don't have to believe. I believe this passage, it says confess, and that's my passage. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't do that because I just looked at one that says believe. I just looked at one that says confess. What if I went to 1 Peter 3.21 that says the like figure whereunto now baptism doth now also save us? And I said, that's what a person's got to do. Just be baptized. You don't have to believe. You don't have to repent. You don't have to confess. You just have to be baptized. How about this? The passage we just read, just eight verses prior, Acts 10.35 says, but in every nation he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted of him. What if I said on the day of judgment, in order to be saved, all you have to do is work righteousness? You would say, well, no, you've got to believe. This verse doesn't say that. You've got to repent. This verse doesn't say that. You've got to repent. You see, the problem is you can't pick one verse that states something and ignores the others. And so I would say this is an inconsistent argument. Here's a third thing that I would say. It ignores something that the Bible uses frequently. That's a part of speech in which a part is used for a whole. The, the grammatical word is a synecdoche. But we use synecdoches. So you hear synecdoche and it sounds complicated, but a part for a whole, we use it all the time. For instance, if the president said, you know what's going on in your Ukraine? We need to get some boots on the ground. What does he mean when he says boots on the ground? He means, he doesn't mean we need to fly over with an airplane and dump out a load of boots. We understand what he means. It's a part for a whole. What if I told you, hey, I just got a new set of wheels? What would you think? What's that? I've got a new car. Why did I just say wheels? It's a synecdoche. It's a part for a whole. What if the uh, reporter came on TV and said, the White House said today, would you conclude that the House said this? The part is representing the whole. We use it all the time. If a farmer says, I have a hundred head of cattle, what would you think? He's out decapitating cattle at his house. What if he said, I've got some new hired hands? If a person speaks frequently, they talk about bread, referring to food. I gave a few. We could give hundreds of these. We use synecdoches all the time. It's a part used for a whole, and the Bible does the same thing. That's why you have passages that say that uh, you have to do righteousness to be accepted of God. It means you've got to be obedient. It's why you've got passages that say God grants repentance unto life. It's why you have passages that will mention faith. Now, somebody might say, well, Don, faith is mentioned more often. There's more passages that state faith and don't state something else than there are passages that state others. 
Why would that be? I think it's a very reasonable um, answer. It's because it's first, right? It's the first thing a person has to do. A person has to believe. It's going to start with believing. Are you going to have repentance unto life if you never believe? No. Are you going to be baptized if you don't believe? Are you going to confess the name of Christ if you don't believe? And so because of that, it generally starts with that whole process. You have to believe. And so there are more passages that state the first step than there are the other steps. That's not difficult to say. It's not difficult to, to understand. Here's another reason why I think it's unreasonable to go to this passage in um, Acts 10, 43, and to say, if a person believes only, he's going to have remission of sins. And it's because the Bible teaches that faith alone does not save. Now, James chapter 2 and verse 20, this is where you were going, isn't it, Frank? Okay. Um, James 19 and verse 20. I was trying to, not to get too many of these verses because I don't want to read the whole chapter, but if you pick up at James 2 and verse 20, I've got it here on the, the board. James says, but he says, Do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? What does that mean? There can be dead faith and there can be living faith. Was, Ab was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? Now, this is interesting. He tells us faith without works is dead. That means there's such a thing as dead faith, and there's such a thing as live faith. As an example, he says you've got to have works in order for your uh, faith to be a live faith. You got to have works in order for your faith to be a live faith. And then he gives us an example of this. He says, Was not Abraham justified by his works, thereby justifying his faith? What is very interesting is in Romans chapter 4, we're specifically told Abraham was not justified by works. And then here he says, Abraham is justified by works. And both of these passages refer back to the same instance in the book of Genesis. So how can one passage say he's not justified by works and the other says he is justified by works? The answer has to be there's different types of works that are being considered. There, we cannot be justified by works of the law of Moses. We cannot be justified by works of personal merit. That is, I cannot earn my salvation I'll never be good enough. There's nothing I can do that God has to say, i got to let you in because of the things you've done. But there are works of obedience. And that's what James is saying. A work of obedience is required for your faith to be not a dead faith. You can have a living faith or you can have a dead faith. Now, James 2.26 says, Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. So there's a dead faith and there's a live faith. Now, Hebrews 11 and verse 30, the Bible talks about the walls of Jericho. Hebrews 11, what do we call that chapter? What's that? The Hall of Faith. This is the Hall of Faith chapter. 
So we learn some things about faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell. Did the walls of Jericho fall by faith? Okay, but did they fall by faith? Okay, before we get there, just answer the first part. Did, they fight, did the walls fall by faith? Yes, they did fall by faith. The Bible says that. Now the next question, did they fall by faith only? What if when God said to them, the walls of Jericho are going to fall, and they said, we believe you, bam, the walls fell, right? Now what happened? He said, the walls fell by faith when? when their faith went into action and did what God said. Now, here's the next question. When they marched around the walls for seven days, did they, did they do that or did God do that? Who made the wall fall? God did. They can't say, well, we earned that. That was not a work of their merit in any way. It was simply a work of obedience. And if you go through Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see that over and over and over again. Works of obedience. They never have anything where their faith was exhibited in a sense that they earned it. But in every single case where it says, by faith Abraham, by faith Noah, by faith the walls fell, every time their faith was exhibited by obedience. If I obey God, that's not me earning it. That's not a work of merit. It's not a work of the law of Moses. It's simply me humbly saying, I will do what you told me to. All right? Um, and we have to say this too. Faith alone does not save. There's a great example at the bottom here. John 12, 42 and 43. If you have faith alone and it doesn't do anything else, what happens? What if you have a faith that doesn't obey? What if you believe, but you don't confess? Will you be saved? So if you believe, but you don't confess, and you're not saved, can you say faith alone? You can't really say faith alone. If you believe, but you don't repent, will you be saved? No. So can you really say faith alone? So you've got to say belief and some other things. John 12 is a great example of some folks who believed, and they stopped right there. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, many believed on him. Let me stop right there and ask an obvious question. Did they believe on Jesus? Yeah, it says that. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Sometimes it's argued by folks in the denominational world, they'll say, well, belief and repentance, they just go together. You can't have one without the other. Belief and confession, they just go together. You can't have one without the other. It's not true. These people believed, but the Bible says they would not confess. Why? Because they didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. Why? Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God.
That's true, and, and um, James holds that up as an example. The devils also believe and tremble. But here's an example of someone who believed. Confession doesn't go automatically with it because they said, we won't do that. The Bible says they believed, but they would not confess. Were they saved? How do we know? Because Matthew 10, 32, Jesus said, if you won't confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. So here is a case of some who the Bible says they believed and they're lost. Belief has to exhibit itself in some sort of obedience. They had to confess. Faith without works of obedience, that is complying with what God said, is worthless. Now, doesn't Ephesians um, 2, 8, 9 say that for by grace are you saved through faith, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast? Yeah, it does. If it's a gift, that means you don't have to do anything, right? But you still have to receive a gift. Doesn't a gift, by definition, require some sort of acceptance? Yeah, it does. And what you'll see with the faith in the Bible, always, 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 you can't find an example in the Bible where God saves someone by faith only. There's just not a, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, there's not. You know, I'm, I'm working on this debate. I've been going through um, example after example after example, and I can't find one. In fact, as I'm going through this, this stuff's been on my, on my mind because I'm studying a lot right now. If you can come up with an argument that is powerful, give it to me because I want to study it, I want to look at it, and I want to be ready. Um, send it to me, email it to me, stick it under my door, however you want, because I would like to do that. Uh, this is some rich stuff here. Okay, let's go on to verse 44. I know the bell's going to ring any minute, but. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Okay, Peter is still speaking, and the Holy Spirit fell upon him. This is very interesting. Peter is still telling him what he needs to do to be saved, and the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius. Now, many denominations teach that this proves that Cornelius was saved prior to baptism because they'll say the Holy Spirit fell on him. The Holy Spirit won't fall on a person who is not a saved person. And to prove that point, they will go to, they will go to John 14, 16 and 17, where Jesus said, I pray the Father that he will give you another helper, that he will abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And they say the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. That particular word, I don't believe that argument for several reasons, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm running out of time here, but I'm, I have run out of time already, but the word receive there is actually, I thought I put this word in here. Oh, I did. You probably can't see it, but this is the Greek word for receive. It is the word lambano. It means to take, to seize, to take by force. You can look the word up yourself if you want to see it, but what Jesus said to them is this, I'm about to go away from you. They're going to take me. They're going to crucify me, but I'm going to send another to you. And he says the world cannot lambano him. Take, seize, take him away. Why? He says, because they can't see him. What is Jesus saying? 
I believe based on the word lambano, he is saying, I am about to go away from you, but the one who's coming, they can't take him away. Why? He's going to be your comforter, and he'll abide with you forever. They can't take him away. All right, I'd like to go through the other reasons, um, but we're going to have to stop. And next week, I'm in a gospel meeting in Texas. So I guess two weeks from today, we'll continue this. But thank you very much. Appreciate your participation.